Managing your law practice can be challenging. Marketing, time management, attracting clients, and all the things besides the cases that you need to do that aren't billable. Welcome to this edition of the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. This is where you'll get the information you need from expert guests and host Christopher Anderson, here on Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Unbillable Hour. I am your host, Christopher Anderson. And today's episode is about production with a focus we haven't really discussed in a while, um, which is legal tech. And, uh, you know, I, I recently went to Clio Cloud Conference, say that three times fast, more easily said as ClioCon. And it was, as always, invigorating and fascinating. And it also kind of reconnected my brain cells um, that, 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 like, had forgotten how many solutions there are out there, how many vendors there are out there who have built really cool stuff. And I don't know if you're anything like me, it's tempting to try each and every one of them, which leads not too long thereafter to complete and utter overwhelm, um, making me want to hide from anybody who wants to present me with any solution at all. Um, and of course, neither direction is the right one, not overindulging, underindulging, running away, um, not, not good solutions. So to help us navigate this sea of information, we've invited Jared Correa to speak with us today and help us sort it all out. Um, before we get started with Jared, of course, I'll just remind you that the main triangle of what it is a law firm business must do includes three apices. Apices? I think that's right. Uh, acquiring new clients, acquisition. Two, producing the results that we promised. In other words, delivering. We call that production. And then, of course, number three, to me the most important, achieving the business and professional results for the owner, which is you. And you're in the center of that whole triangle, driving all of it for better or worse, and eliminating some confusion here about technology is going to be for better. Um, so in today's episode, we're going to discuss how to choose what technology is right for your law firm business and how to reject the rest without getting overwhelmed. And for that, my guest is Jared Correa. Now, Jared is the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting and the COO of Gideon Software. And we're going to call today's episode Separating the Wheat. Jared, yeah, like I said, is uh, the CEO of Red Cave, COO Gideon. Red Cave is a subscription-based law firm business management consulting business for law firm and bar associations. And then Gideon provides end-to-end -end intake solutions for high-volume law firms. And that includes document assembly, e-signature, and such. Jared is also an attorney, formerly practicing, and uh, has found himself cured of that, um, and uh, also internationally recognized legal tech expert. He speaks all over the place. Anywhere I go, Jared's there and, and said he's really, really well respected as he does that. And we'll we'll get your website information later. So first of all, just Jared, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. I had no idea we'd be covering geometry, triangles, apexes. Oh, yeah. like, no, that's, I'm, I'm already lost. <laughs> don't worry. Three points is as far as we go. We never talk about right. squares or pentagons or dodecahedrons. Oh, good. Um, and good. certainly never tesseracts. Like, we stay clear <laughs> of that. Smart. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on, man. This is great. I'm excited. Absolute pleasure. So before we get started, I just said like two words about Red Cave and Gideon. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, but so just to kind of round out who you are and how you come to this. Can you just talk a little bit more about how you got into legal tech consulting and Red Cave and, and then oh, sure. what Gideon's all about? Yeah. So um, I went to law school and 
got a real legal job afterwards. But I was always interested in the consulting piece of it. So when I was in law school, I went to the career development office and I was like, uh, I, want, I think I want to do consulting for lawyers. And they were basically like, get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. It sucked. <laughs> and then uh, like 2008, I want to say, uh, Massachusetts, where I lived, launched a free consulting platform for all barred attorneys. And I was like, great, I can like learn how to do consulting. And I worked there for... That was low mass? Low map, yeah, in Massachusetts. Low map? Was like, yeah. yeah, close enough. That was like six to eight years I think I was there. And for the last 10 years or so, I broke off of there and found in my own uh, consulting business because there was just like too much outreach from other states and other countries. Sure. And I was leaving money on the table. So basically, I do business management consulting for lawyers. That's mostly subscription-based. So I can work with firms and help them to grow. And we talk about a bunch of things, like anything related to business management, really. But I do a lot of tech consulting in the sense of like, okay, what technology is out there? How do you pick it? Like you talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. Like how do you employ it in an effective way? And all the things that are related to technology, like reporting and KPIs. So that's been fun. I've got subscription clients. I've got bar associations that I partner with, about 20 of those. So it's cool. Excellent. Yeah. And what about Gideon? Like that's that's even news to me a little bit. I, I, maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe I just have amnesia. No, but, no, that's uh, fine. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell us about Gideon. So I, I started a software company with a partner uh, several years back, and uh, we've been building that up. So we've effectively got like an intake platform uh, that qualifies clients for law firms. And we've got some cool stuff built in there. Uh, we can do document assembly from intake. Um, we've also got a uh, proprietary e-signature tool that we built into that. We work with a lot of like high volume PI type of practices. Um, and we actually are building out CRM features, which should launch uh, in the next couple of weeks or so. Must uh, yeah, so that's- But so that. your sweet spot with that is is PI? Yeah, for the most, like you, so like firms that get a lot of leads and need to triage them quickly. And, you know, the PI people, like they just want to get somebody signed up to an engagement yep. agreement and then they'll figure it out later. So having like that qualification mechanism and then an e-signature platform where they can sign documents without channel switching is great for them. So, and just for the listeners, in case anyone's interested in getting like what, when you say high volume, like what's, what's the kind of volume range that you like to deal with? I mean, Usually we're talking like, you know, hundreds to thousands of monthly intakes at Got the, it. at the very, not like 20 or 30, you know. Cool. All right. So that's you. That's me. In a in a small nutshell. But in so a let's nutshell. Get, <laughs> let's get let's get to what we're here to talk about, which is the technology stuff. Yeah. Um and like, you know, so the emotions like that I go through. So i like I said, I was just at CleoCon. This is the same right. when I go to when I go to <laughs> ABA tech show or legal tech or you know, sometimes the state bar ones or whatever. Um it, it, it always goes the same way. It's like the first reaction is, holy moly, I didn't know that existed. That's amazing. I've got to have that. Right. And then after about six of those, I'm like, I got to go get a beer. Um, right. Like, it's right. just, I'm done. And, um, <laughs> you know, so the, the question is, like, how should the listeners, you know, the law firm owners and law firm lawyers that are listening and, and you know, have to deal with technology decisions, how should they approach this? Like, is it... Do they determine their needs first and then go look for it? Do they, you know, get really aggressive about buying as much software as possible before they might really need it? Like, how do you advise your clients um, and how do, would you advise the listeners to kind of just approach the whole thing? It's funny, man. I get like, uh, I get 
conversations with people who go to Clio or go to these other events too. And they're like, I want to buy 17 different softwares. <laughs> and then they're yeah. like, oh my, that's a lot of subscriptions. That's going to cost me like an additional $900 a month. So maybe I should step back from that. But I guess, the, I guess the thing is like, it shows that the legal tech environment is pretty healthy. Like there were a ton of acquisitions recently yeah. and there's still a lot of good software that's coming out that's doing things that other software doesn't do, which I think is awesome. And the way I look at it for law firms is like, I have them do kind of like a baseline review of what they got right now. Like what software do you have? What does it do? And then I kind of think of it as like buying a house. So I have people develop like a wish list and then things they hate about their existing software. Mm -hmm. So the wish list part of it is like, like when you're buying a house, you're like, do you need a garage? Do you have to have it? Or are you cool with like parking in the driveway? Right. And that may be a different question if you're living in New England versus living in Southern California. Yeah. And so I try to get them to think of it in that way. And then I'm like, okay, what do you really hate about this software? What really needs to improve? And then we try to select down in any category to like no more than three to four softwares. I have them do demos, keeping in mind what it is that they want from the software, really focused demos. And then I try to get them to pin that down and make choices based on that. That's usually the process I walk through. But I think the problem is like, like you said, like everybody's like, oh, that software is cool. It does this one thing that I really like. Well, does it do the other three or four things I need it to do right. as well? So people, you know how lawyers are. They just want a bill. And they're like, oh, can you just tell me what software to get? But you have to put right. some effort in here and review the products. Yeah. Yeah. But so like you said three or four. And I was like, I was look, listening to you say that. You're like, three or four? That's like. One tenth of what I've got. Um, uh, like I want to look at fifty. Yeah, but like seriously, I mean, you, you, is that the total number of software packages that a firm should be working with? Is three or four? Well, I guess like if you were gonna, I think the problem with a lot of law firms is they'll do a Google search, right, and they'll be like, mm -hmm. "Oh, there's seventeen cool softwares that I want to look at." So a lot of times when I talk to people, um, and, and I, I think lawyers have trouble doing this on their own which is kind of how I see myself fitting in. Like I have conversations with them and I'm like, okay, you want it to do this. Like you're looking at 17 softwares, five of them don't do this. Okay, <laughs> you want it to do this. You're looking at 17 softwares, three of them don't do this. So effectively, like given what their specific requirements are, we can really whittle it down to like three to four people, uh, three to four tools pretty easily. So I think it's always surprising to people where they're like, oh, I didn't know it didn't do that. That's a deal breaker right. for me. That's right. usually how it works. Yeah, usually, usually after you buy it, when you discover that it doesn't Yeah, that. usually after you buy it, which is why I try to do that up front. <laughs> right, because interestingly, the sales folks don't demo the things it doesn't do. <laughs> like, they don't like, now, before we get started, I want to be clear that this does not make toast. Doesn't do it. Um, you know, and yeah, I've never heard that said before, <laughs> yeah. but it's true, right? No. All right, so, 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 okay, so you said make a list, a wish list of the things you want it, this particular thing to be able to do. That to me was like fit, right? So you might not be sure it fits and, and probably a good idea to talk to somebody because I've seen some people buy both ways. I've seen people buy stuff that kind of does what they want it to do, but it's for a much smaller firm and it's going to, they're out going to outgrow right. it. It's not really for right. them. Um, you know, they're buying a, you know, one of these off the shelf CRMs that you know, is very, very good when you're getting started, but not very good. Or to the contrary, some smaller firms buying enterprise level stuff 
um, that requires immense amounts of configuration. What what it, what did Keep used to be called um, uh, Infusionsoft, you know, stuff right. like that. I see I see small firms buy Infusionsoft and be like, oh my god, like you can't do that. <laughs> um, and, uh, right. and so so that's fit. But you also, um, when we were talking and preparing, you also talked about usability. How is that an important part of the yeah. inquiry? I mean, just quickly, I think you make a great point about the fit part of it. Because that, that's part of the conversation I have with firms as well. Like, what is your growth plan? Mm-hmm. And then let's, not, let's figure out, like, are you going to buy software for a later point in time? Or are you buying software right now that you know you'll need to upgrade? There's not necessarily a bad answer for that, but again, it's like something you should be thoughtful about and planning for. And then the other thing related to that is like, what version of the software do you want? Like every software has got three or four different versions up to the enterprise version. And you know how it is, like from a psychology standpoint, everybody's going to pick like the middle. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But is that really right for your law firm? Like that's something you should dive into. But the usability thing is interesting. I, I can have like really robust conversations with firms we're on the phone for three hours talking about technology. And then they're like, you know what? I like the way this one looks. <laughs> and then off it's green. I like that. green. <laughs> this has a cool color. <laughs> so I think like the UI stuff, user interface stuff, usability stuff, super important for attorneys because they don't want, I mean, I get it. Like to some extent, it's like if you're an unsophisticated tech buyer, which a lot of attorneys are, frankly, like that's going to be the thing that catches your eye. Like, oh, this software looks cool. I think it'll do cool things. But then the other piece of it is also logistical because the people in your firm actually have to use it. It can't be like this like mystery box where it's like, how do I do this function? I need to take three steps to get there. Or is it like really obvious that I click this button and it does this thing? Like there's, there's some viability to that as well. So I think UI is like highly important to law firms when they're talking about choosing software, but they, they often don't go beyond that. Yeah. And the problem with that too, is that the buyer is not the user a lot of times. Yes. Um, and, right. and you got that problem where you, know, you buy this thing that like is a little bit complicated, but you're like, I can figure it out. And like, then you bring it to your team and they're like, I can't figure it out. <laughs> and right. then you got training and all that other stuff. And Listen, if you got law firms that have like tech managers, it's a whole different thing too, who are not yeah. attorney. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on with that. We're going to take a break here and uh, let, uh, let our sponsors have a word because, um, you know, they pay the bills and stuff. Uh, so we're going <laughs> to let them do their thing. And uh, we're, we're going to come back and we're going to turn our attention to a little bit of data security because, you know, to me that that sort of ebbs and flows over the years. People get more interested in it and less interested in it. But lately, if people aren't getting interested in it, they need to be. So let's talk about that when we come back and a whole bunch of other stuff. But first, we'll hear from them. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Law Clerk's nationwide network of talented freelance lawyers is trusted by thousands of law firms. Solo attorneys and firms can get help with project-based work and also ongoing work via a subscription. Sign up is free, and there are no monthly fees. You only pay when you delegate work. Plus, 
LawClerk has a new app for your mobile device to help you manage the work you've delegated while you're on the go. Be sure to use referral code UNBILLABLE when you sign up at lawclerk.legal. All right, we are back with Jared Correa. Um, he's the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting and also CEO of Gideon Software, which is an intake software solution um, and really system, it sounds like, from what we learned. But we've been talking about law firms and vetting software and how to make decisions. And um, the, the third piece of that that I wanted to talk to when we went to break was security. I think it was Jack Newton at Clio was talking about how law firms have really become, as other businesses, banks and brokers and, and doctors and medicine and all these other places have gotten really good at security, law firms have kind of become the soft underbelly and, we're, <laughs> and, we, and we, we hold a treasure trove of information that's oh, valuable. And so what should people be thinking about when they're acquiring software? How should they be considering security? You know, like lawyers are not great at this. And I yeah. will tell you, I probably get like, because I, I, like you, like I talk with a lot of law firms, I will get no less than like 10 emails every week from a law firm that's had a data breach. And they're <laughs> like, please don't open our emails. And I'm like, I hope that's not the only thing you're doing. <laughs> um, right. But I think, so, so the data stuff is not necessarily overly complex, but the problem is like lawyers don't take the first steps to figure it out. So there's two components here. The first is that when you're vetting software, you wanna have an understanding of what security features exist in that software. So you can look at the service level agreement to figure some of that stuff out. Some of these companies have security audits that they publish on their website. Some of these companies are certified in a specific way. And really, based on the changes to the ethics rules in almost every state where lawyers need to have a reasonable competency in terms of using technology, that extends to vetting software for security. So you want to ask the right questions. You want to record your research just in case something happens. Because, you know, it's likely that a firm would get breached at some point to some extent. Sure. And But the rule is not that you have to guarantee that you're avoiding breach. You have to take reasonable steps to avoid it. So you want to do that research. There's, there's good ethics opinions in almost every state that talk about the questions you should ask. But then the other part of it is like once you get into the software, like what can you turn on that's not mm -hmm. turned on automatically? It's still crazy to me how many law firms aren't even aware of like secondary factors of authentication. Yes. And that's the easiest way to avoid a breach because what happens a lot of time is somebody accesses your password and that's a problem. Especially if your password is, is password. Yeah. Which most of them are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like the second stage is, okay, do they have your phone so they can access the authentication code? Unlikely. So right. just, just setting up that step protects you so much. But like software doesn't come out of the box with that. You have to set right. it up. You also right. have to understand like the sharing capabilities of any software you're using, when data is encrypted, when it's not, when data is in transit, when it's moving, what effect that has. Like at a very baseline level, if you have strong passwords, secondary factors of authentication, and you encrypt data when you should and don't send it via email, like that's 95% of the battle when it sure. comes to data security. And lawyers, should, like a lot of law firms don't even know that that's a thing that they can do. So I'd like you to repeat one thing, because I think that'd be like the, the cool thing for them to, to look at. You said, you know, I, we were talking about, you know, the, in case people didn't know what, what, what we meant, like I think it's model rule 1.1 yes. um, has 
comment. It's not in the rule. It's not. Yeah, it's in the, the comments that one one 1.1 is just about competence, right? But in the in the comments, almost every state has now adopted the model comment from the ABA, which is that you, in addition to competence as a lawyer, you've got to actually have a competence as to the technology that you use. Or, and here's a new one, don't use, right? So <laughs> failure right. to use- Are we talking use, about AI? No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but, but no, failure to use a relevant technology can yes. also be a breach of 1.1. Yes, absolutely. And there have been cases about that, for sure. So in, in your state, it's either going to usually be comment six or comment eight to yeah. rule 1.1. And, you know, you could make the argument that beyond that comment, like, it makes sense, like, from yeah. a logistics yeah. perspective that you do this as a lawyer. Like, why wouldn't you? Right, exactly. But but what I wanted you to comment and repeat, though, was in relation to that, you said that most bars have a list of questions to ask. Where right. would people access that? Because I think that would be a really great resource for people. So most bars have an ethics opinion related to professional competency in technology. And a lot of them have a list of questions that you want to ask of vendors. Like it's usually 10 to 25 questions, mm -hmm. which I think is really helpful if you've never asked those questions before. The other thing I should mention quickly is that like there's some decent alignment between the ethics opinions that have been produced and also the state laws on data security. At this point, almost every state, I think every state does have a law on data security of some kind. Uh, some are more stringent than others like Massachusetts and California. But if you look at the language, it kind of tracks back to the requirements and the ethics rules. So largely speaking, if you follow the state requirements, that's enough to configure yourself correctly for the ethics that's a great requirements. Yeah. Sort of related to security. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've, I won't, I don't want to age you. So I'm just going to age myself. <laughs> you can age me. <laughs> I, I've been around long enough that like at the beginning of my career, law firms were just setting up networks, right? We, they had individual computers, and they were setting up networks. And then they bought servers. And now for the most part, servers, so a lot of law firms still have them. They do, but, yeah. Yeah, but, but, but a lot of law firms have moved to mostly cloud-based solutions. What's your take? Do, do law firms really need hardware anymore? Or like, is, like how should they be thinking about that? Because there's a security bit about that too. Yeah, I think a lot of lawyers think the hardware is more secure. And so mm -hmm. that's why they want to have the physical servers. But it's largely about how you set it up. Like we just talked about like four or five different things you could do to secure cloud-based technology, which in a lot of cases is going to be more secure than physical hardware. Like what's to stop somebody from breaking into your office and stealing your server? Like I feel like the cloud is much more secure in a lot of ways. So the only hardware I would have if I was running a law firm is probably a laptop, a tablet, and a smartphone, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I'd be accessing everything else on the cloud. Like that's even true if I have desktop software that I'm using because I'm probably setting that desktop software up on a terminal server so that I can access it via the cloud. Right. And I mean, it's it's not only a security thing, it's also like a logistics thing, an efficiency thing. And this is a pandemic thing that happened with a lot of law firms. Like when the pandemic hit, I had all these law firms call me and they were like, I can't get to my server, can't get to my phones. And I'm like, hey, I got good news for you. There's an easy solution for that. So yeah. I, I, when I talk to law firms, like I, I'm like, I'm biased about it. Yeah, I, I want them off of hardware. This is costly. 
It's hard to maintain. And the cloud stuff is just so much easier. And at this point, like I had a law firm that I was talking to the other day and they were like, well, is Microsoft safe? I'm like, I hope so, because every law firm in the world uses it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I, I like to turn that question around and go like, who do you think is spending more money on being safe? <laughs> right. You or Microsoft? <laughs> right. Like, you know, in, in the, great. When, they, when people want to resist the cloud, like they come up with these like James Bond scenarios. And like, it's like, just like, is it safer than you? Is it safer than Peggy down the hall who p- pastes her password on her screen? Well, it's interesting because the state laws I was referencing, yeah, a lot of those have different requirements for the different size of business and the different resources that business has. So actually by law, Microsoft, Amazon, companies like that are required to have far superior security than a small law firm would. So yeah. that's codified. Yeah, and, and and so why not take why not ride on that, right? Why not take advantage? I'll tell you a little anecdote. Then we're going to go to another break. But like, I I was working with a law firm who was giving me this hardware argument, like, no, our hardware is more secure. And so I was like, listen, tell you what, I want to review your situation. So I want um, we're going to meet next Tuesday at your office. We're going to talk about it. And so and we're going to meet at eight o'clock. And so I go in at eight o'clock on Tuesday and like the place is on fire. Not literally like people running around <laughs> like crazy. Right. We can't access any of our hardware, our software. We can't access like the whole network's down. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, is that really true? Yeah. Huh. That's really awful. Um, tell you what, why don't we go in this conference room? Let me tell you something. And then we went to the conference room. I said, the reason you can't access your software is um, I'm bribed your cleaning crew last night and came in here and I pulled out one ethernet cable from, from your server and I plugged it into my device that I've got sitting in that room right now, copying everything. Um, it's amazing. 50 bucks, 50 bucks. Now you want to talk to me about Microsoft and if they're safe. Like, that's, and that's, that that's was it. great. That's, that's great. my anecdote. And for, I love that. I'll never out the firm, but uh, uh, they went to the cloud that year. Um, and what they did, and I, we do need to go to break, but I think you kind of alluded to it. But for those who are a little bit nervous about switching to cloud-based software, there is an interim or an intermediate solution where you can actually just have your server environment put in a safe place. Yes, that would be a terminal server option that we talked yeah. about. Yeah, you can have your own cloud server, like a private cloud. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, we are going to take a break here. When we come back, we're going to just talk about what, like, what are the big four? Uh, you know, if you're thinking about yes. what do I need, if you haven't really bought much, if you're thinking about starting your own law firm, we're going to talk about the big four. What four major pieces of software should every law firm have? And then we'll see if we've got time for anything else. But uh, first, we'll hear one more word from our sponsors. Nearly 80% of people search for lawyers online. They visit websites and check reviews. If your site doesn't appear in the top search results or it presents poorly, you risk losing clients. That's why you must know how your firm stacks up on Google against the competition. See how your reviews impact clients' decisions and how you can get better results from your site. Get an unbiased marketing performance report in under a minute right now at Grow Law Firm. And that's growlawfirm.com slash unbillable. Once again, growlawfirm.com slash unbillable. Find out how TimeSolve fits your firm with six different ways to track time. Surely one will fit, even on the go. Or quickly estimate flat fee projects. Batch payments for hundreds of invoices at once with TimeSolve Pay. Getting paid quickly is a great fit. And TimeSolve fits with the other tools you use. QuickBooks, LawPay, NetDocuments, LawRuler, 
Microsoft, all just plug in. Try TimeSolve free. Get a $100 Amazon gift card when you sign up. TimeSolve.com. And we are back with Jared Correa. What I wanted to do is like if folks are just getting started or even if they aren't, because maybe one of these four is not one of the ones they've got. Um, what would you say is like the core four? That's what we're going to call it. The core like four that. Yeah. Um, software that, that every law firm really should have. I think probably two of them are obvious, right? You need productivity software. And when I say productivity software, I know a lot of people may not know what that means. That's like email, calendar, document storage, that type of thing, and a whole bunch of other stuff like Google. These Workspace, days, basically, Microsoft, Microsoft Outlook and uh, online uh, or uh, the Google suite of services. Right, and for and for most law firms, it's Microsoft, honestly. Yeah. Um, and then you need an accounting software, which is mostly QuickBooks, and then a smattering of other players, including Zero, and then the other two. I think a lot of law firms at this point have case management software or law practice management software, which I really like because it's a relational database for law firms. So honestly, like I stopped practicing law really because like we had these like interminable case meetings all the time. Like I remember the first law firm I was at, like all these old partners would bring me in on a Saturday and we'd do a case review of every single case we had, like every week. And I was like, this is stupid. I should be at the beach. Like, isn't there a better way to organize this data? And lo and behold, there was. They just weren't using it. So right. if you get a case management software, especially a cloud-based one, it can suck in all this information, attach it to a case. So I click a button on a matter and I see everything that's happening in that case in chronological order. Historically, it's beautiful. Um, so you got to have that, I think, because email doesn't do that. It's not a relational yeah, database. It just tracks emails. You can organize in subfolders, but that's not the same thing. Um, and then the fourth, which is like more of a pandemic thing than anything else, hmm. because lawyers started calling me on this, where they were like, okay, um, we don't know what to do. We've got leads, but they can't come to our office and sign a piece of paper because no one wants to touch our pen. And they can't like pay us a check because they can't come into the office. Like law firms had like, all analog intake processes up right. through 2020. And then they were like, oh my God, we have to build something from scratch now. So the fourth one would be CRM, customer relationship management software or lead management software. So how do you get a lead to convert to a client in the firm? There's a whole pipeline for that. You can track your advertising, get reporting done through that. You can do marketing automation through that tool. Like I think every law firm should have a CRM, even the small ones. And then it depends on what one you buy. Like you were talking sure. about, if you're a solo lawyer, you don't need to get Infusionsoft, but you get or a smaller be, product. Yeah. yeah, like there's so many options out there now to look at, but you want to have something. So yeah. those are the big four as far as I'm concerned. CRM, law practice management, productivity software, and accounting software. And you unify all those because they're cloud-based and you swap data back and forth. It's a good deal. Which gives us a great segue. You unify all those. Some of them actually have built-in integrations one to the other. Right. Some don't. <laughs> Is that, and some don't. Is that a must? Like, do you need to have the built-in integration or like how should law firms think about that? I mean, ideally, you want to have what I would call a direct integration or built-in integration, which is that two companies work together and they're like, hey, we're going to move data back and forth between our products. I'm writing to your API. You're writing to my API, which is just a fancy way of saying like these softwares can share data with each other. So you can drop your time and billing information into Xero or QuickBooks pretty easily. You can archive emails at your case management software, that kind of thing. The good thing about direct integrations is that they usually have more features and they don't cost anything. 
if you don't have a direct integration, you got two options. One is you could create an indirect integration using a third-party software, like Zapier is probably the most popular tool that does this. But you could have two companies that don't have a direct integration, but they've both written for Zapier's API. So right. I could connect like Google Forms to my case management software, for example. Now, the problem with that is because there's a third party that needs to get paid, depending <laughs> on how many of these things you set up, depending on how many triggers you build, your cost starts to ramp up a little bit. So it's not ideal. I, I would never have believed that yeah, third party integration software like Zapier, for me, Zapier, I would be paying them more than I pay some of my software. <laughs> yeah. I know it's wild, isn't it? Like, yeah. it's kind of like, like what does it do? It's pipes. <laughs> exactly. It's pipes. Exactly. It's funny. It's kind of like, I remember when people started ditching cable and it was like, oh, great. I'm going to have like a streaming service that I can buy and it's going to cost me 30 bucks a month. Now yeah. I got like a million streaming services. It's the same type of thing. Um, but, the, but the alternative is like building, getting the API access yourself. And some companies won't give up that information to individuals or, or right. individual businesses. And that's costly. And you got to maintain it because these APIs break all the time. Because oh, yeah. Or they just change them. Well, yeah, they change yeah. them. One company changes the name of a field and the whole thing's busted. So I, I tell, like, don't build your own. Like, if you can't find a direct integration, find an indirect integration. There's a whole bunch of them available. All right. So I want to wrap this with the hot topic. Oh, yeah. Again, ClioCon was all about it. But I mean, if you haven't noticed it this year, um, you ain't paying attention. Um, <laughs> and that's AI, artificial intelligence. It's yeah. all the buzz. Everybody's talking about how law firms are really, really ripe for disruption. Of course, again, spent three always? decades <laughs> being told how law firms are really ripe for disruption by X, Y, and Z. Um, <laughs> right. But I kind of think it's true. So how does AI fit into the, what we've been talking about? How can lawyers, what should lawyers be thinking about in choosing to get some of that AI, like I mean, like, I, like how do they wrap their minds around this? What is it? What what should they be thinking about over the next year? That's going to be somebody's slogan now. Get some of that AI. <laughs> I guess the, I guess I'm thinking of three things. Like one is if you haven't tried it yet, just check it out. Do something stupid on like ChatGPT or Google Bard or whatever. Like my son likes these sports drinks called Prime, which are like crazy popular now. And uh, so I'm like, let's make our own. Let's build a recipe on ChatGPT. Can do that for you. I'm like, okay, give me this recipe, remove the caffeine, make it a flavor, like that kind of thing. So just get used to it. Uh, the other thing is that there's AI happening, being utilized in products you're already using. So we talked about right. Microsoft. Like, it, It's funny, Like when you're drafting an email in Microsoft or a Word document, they've got these phrase completions now. And I talk to people and they're like, oh my God, Like, I would have said that. Of course, because they're monitoring what you're doing. <laughs> they're right. implementing AI. That's like an AI tool that you're using every day yeah, I would without even that. realizing it. Yeah. They know. <laughs> they know. They know. Um, Google search has an AI component now. It's coming everywhere. So get used to that stuff and understand how it works. Um, and then what you're starting to see now, which I think is like probably eventually going to be the fullest flowering of this, is that if you've got legal technology companies using AI and releasing AI features at a pretty rapid rate, some companies have been doing this for a long time. Like eDiscovery has been using AI forever. Um, legal research companies have been using AI forever. But now you're seeing a push in like case management software companies. Like you went to ClioCon, they released a bunch of AI-related features. FileVine just launched a bunch of AI-related features. Right now, 
they're fairly simple in the sense that they're relying a lot on generative AI, right. which is you ask a question or create a prompt and the AI spits out the answer. So you're seeing things like medical record summaries, that kind of thing. But it's going to get more sophisticated over the course of time. Data is going to become more involved. And what I like about those is that's a closed environment. So one of the problems with AI is that it hallucinates. It makes things up right, if right, it thinks yeah. you can give you an answer. But if you're researching in Thomson Reuters, Westlaw, which just acquired uh, Case Text, which had a feature called Co-Counsel, which is AI-assisted legal research, like you know the sites are going to be good because they're drawing from the sites that Westlaw right. has. So it's a little bit safer for attorneys to utilize AI and the software they're already utilizing. And I think that's going to be yes. what they start to do. As opposed to going to ChatGPT and writing a brief that you actually submit where it hallucinated entire cases. Yeah. <laughs> and then people are like, hey, are these cases correct? And ChatGPT is like, sure, Bill. These cases yeah. are correct. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> and people rely on that, like intelligent people, attorneys. <laughs> it's crazy to me. <laughs> so, yeah, use, use the AI tools that are embedded into the software that you're using. That makes a using, lot of sense. Because they're already there or they're coming. And they're vetted and they're tuned and, yeah, it, right. to avoid problems like that. Listen, Jared, we are, we're out of time. Um, and so we're going to have to wrap this up. What I'd love to be able to do, though, um, so first of all, that does wrap up this edition of the Unbillable Hour. And so thank you, all our listeners, for hanging in here with us. Um, my guest today has been Jared uh, D. Correa, oh, Esquire, CEO of Red Cave Law Firm <laughs> Consulting and COO of Gideon Software. Jared, we talked about a lot of stuff. Some folks might want to follow up with you on, on some of it. How can they get in touch with you? Oh, uh, yeah, a couple of websites, redcavelegal.com for consulting gideonlegal.com for the software. And then, you know, if you type my name into Google, if you can spell it, C-O-R-R-E-I-A, you'll find a bunch of stuff. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jared. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. All right. And of course, I am Christopher T. Anderson, and I look forward to seeing, listening, being with all of you again next month with another great guest as we learn more about topics that help us build the law firm business that works for you. And just a quick reminder that in addition to this interview podcast, um, the Unbillable Hour also has the community table, which we release every month. But you can participate in the community table live, each and every one of you, by coming on through the Legal Talk Network. And we're on the third Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern time every month. Third Thursdays at 3 o'clock Eastern on the community table. And look for that podcast as well. People ask great questions and get good advice from me and others. Um, as far as this show, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. We'll speak again soon. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. Join us again for the next edition, right here with Legal Talk Network. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, 
These immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app.